My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Dave Blakeney. Every year since 1995, more or less, there's been an annual United Nations Climate Change Conference referred to officially as the Conference of the Parties, or COP. The goal of these intergovernmental meetings is to negotiate global approaches to responding to climate change and to assess progress in doing so. It is these conferences that resulted in the Kyoto Protocol, which was adopted in 1997 and came into force in 2005, as well as the Paris Agreement, adopted in 2015. Civil society organizations also gather each year at these conferences to observe the official proceedings and to participate in their own events. COP25 took place in Madrid in December 2019. The goal of the meeting was to reach a new global agreement, ostensibly to implement the Paris Agreement's commitment to limit warming to an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. However, despite increasingly stark warnings from scientists and the upsurge in grassroots mobilizing on this issue in the last couple of years, the negotiations were a complete failure. Not only was an agreement not reached, but the substance of the negotiations, particularly on the part of the world's most powerful countries, were broadly condemned by civil society organizations as completely inadequate to the crisis the world faces. For instance, Alden Meyer of the Union of Concerned Scientists said, quote, Never have I seen the almost total disconnect we've seen here at COP25 in Madrid between what the science requires and what the climate negotiations are delivering in terms of meaningful action. End quote. One Canadian organization that attends the UN climate change conferences is the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, or CUPW. Some unions understand the interests of their members in the context of a fairly narrowly conceived picture of the workplace, and for sure, wages and working conditions of members are definitely important. But CUPW is among those unions that recognize that their members' lives don't stop at the metaphorical plant gate. Workers live in communities, and they face shared issues with other working-class people in those communities and around the world. Whether it was their pivotal role in the struggle for parental leave, their long-standing collaboration with anti-poverty groups, their history of international solidarity work, or their involvement in fighting trade agreements that hurt working people, CUPW has often acted from this broader sense of solidarity. CUPW's engagement with climate issues comes from a few different places. To an extent, it has roots in the Union's participation in global justice struggles in the 1980s and 1990s. It's also a recognition that many postal workers have to work outside, so the higher summer temperatures and the increased frequency of extreme weather events that are part of the climate crisis are a direct workplace issue. And partly, it's an act of taking seriously the slogan system change, not climate change, and the approach that goes under the banner of climate justice, both of which in part imply that what we need is not a simple technical fix, but a far-reaching transformation, and that all of us must do our part to reach it. 
An important expression of CUPW's commitment to climate issues is their Delivering Community Power project, a far-reaching set of proposals to make use of the vast existing infrastructure of the post office in the service of a just transition to a post-carbon economy. Dave Blakeney first became a postal worker in 1987, and he is the second national vice president of CUPW. He attended the COP25 conference in Madrid. Though a CUPW media release in the wake of the conference described the talks as a, quote, dismal failure, and spoke scathingly of the, quote, criminal organizations masquerading as democratic governments that have aligned themselves with industry and capital, end quote, Blakeney also sees reasons for hope. UN meetings are usually very staid and reserved affairs, but he saw an unprecedented willingness, even among professional participants, to speak out about our current crisis and to name the system as the problem. And there was a level of disruptive and confrontational mobilizing from grassroots attendees beyond what previous UN climate conferences have seen, a sign of the growing and increasingly combative global climate movement. I spoke with Blakeney about CUPW, about COP25, and about the urgent need for climate action. My name is Dave Blakeney. I'm the second national vice president for the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. We're a union representing around 55,000 workers from coast to coast, mainly in postal or postal-related sectors. We take a serious interest in climate change, given that we work for an employer who uses an immense amount of transportation and CO2 to move the mail around, has the largest vehicle fleet in the country and largest building stock. To drive a change to address the climate emergency that we're facing requires all parts of society to initiate major and profound changes in to direct us to a post-carbon economy. And to that end, we attend the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Madrid. Really, in a nutshell, bullies have always bothered me. Ever since I was a kid in school, it's always given me a kind of visceral reaction of real unfairness that has to be addressed. And I think, you know, working through the labor movement was a natural progression. So I started in the post office in 1987, and the employer was really the best organizer, and I became involved from the union through just general workplace harassment and the mistreatment of others and myself. And as I more discovered some of the social policies of the Canadian Union Postal Workers and some of its historical past, that had quite an impact on me. And I would say also probably the biggest impact for me personally was growing up on unceded Mi'kmaq territory and not learning anything about the original inhabitants. So growing up in a village in New Brunswick with almost complete and total erasure of Indigenous culture and history in the area that I grew up with puzzled me. And I think things just flowed from there. Becoming acquainted with Arthur Manuel became a good friend of mine who taught me a great deal about relationships with the land and sustainability. And Arthur Manuel was a prominent Indigenous leader and activist from the Sohwapmuk Nation. And I think just from there, I've become someone who tries to walk with a light footprint and to create a kind of change in the world that future generations can have a good life. Years ago, there was a historical compromise, spoken or unspoken, where labor decided to not necessarily fight for communities and not fight as a social class, but to fight for the workers that they represented in specific workplaces. So we got into this, I think, unfortunate situation over time. Of we care about our workers, not necessarily the people that are unemployed out front or the people down the street or how unemployment and injustice affects an entire community. And we leave all that out to just focus on the workers that we represent. And what struck me about CUPW and going back many years 
years, and, and I, I know the younger generations may forget this, but parental leave wasn't always something that Canadians could take for granted. And the postal workers really stood up in a national way to fight for parental leave. Well, at that time, it was maternal leave, which has now been, of course, expanded into parental leave and, and affects most of society. So I think that's a perfect example where a union can take a struggle that resonates with communities that actually benefits those communities. And to me, that's an important kind of trade unionism that needs to come back, that needs to really be elevated. What we're talking about is the right to dignity, the right to sustainable living, you know, shelter, the kind of things that benefit a society. That's the kind of trade unionism that resonates with me. It's not just about me getting a wage increase. And of course, yeah, we all need to keep up with inflation and reap the benefits of the work that we provide. So those are, I think, a number of things I think set CPW on a trajectory that looks at social causes as also very crucial to what we experience inside the workplace. You know, and I can think of many examples. The fight against South African apartheid when the Toronto local provided an office to the South African Congress of Trade Unions to organize from in Toronto. Relationships that have taken place with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty over the years that reaches out beyond our workplaces into the communities that we're working in. And to me, that ties to an Indigenous worldview, too, that we're not separate from each other. The way the society runs is try to break us down into all individuals completely separated from one another. And that's just not the case. I mean, the health of my community speaks directly to my health and the health of my family. And I think we shouldn't allow the separation of that, the erosion of that. What has CUPW's trajectory of involvement with climate issues been like? I was involved with a group called People's Global Action back in the 1990s that was looking at, you know, confronting big trade structures like the World Trade Organization, which are effectively a kind of bill of rights for corporations and for corporate power. And through that network, had a lot of relations with Southern-led Indigenous movements from different places. And this had a profound, certainly, impact on me and I think in my union and bringing these things more to light within the union. And certainly the work of Donald LaFleur, who was an officer in CPW, who took a really active interest in the environment and specifically climate. And we realized that for postal workers, for example, we're required to deliver through rain, snow, sleet and hail. And it's just sort of accepted that when everybody else has gone home, that we're still out there working through these brutal conditions. But it's no longer snow, rain, sleet and hail. It's now hurricane, tornado, flood, fire. These are becoming normalized. And in fact, a couple of years ago, when we saw the enormous fires in British Columbia, the province issued a directive that people working outside should wear masks. So this is our world now, where to work outside, one may be asked to wear a mask. So I think it's sort of been a natural convergence of what people are experiencing at work and the growing and increasing disasters that we're seeing. And to be fair, a call from Catherine McKenna, the Canadian Environment Minister, who in Paris called on all the parties in Paris in 2015, no matter what our sectors, no matter what we do, that we all have to come up with solutions. And so we took her at her word. We actually did that and came up with something called Delivering Community Power, which looks at using postal services and that infrastructure to really inject some energy into creating a post-carbon economy. You know, we have this immense infrastructure. There are more post offices, for example, than there are Tim Hortons. Canada Post has the largest vehicle fleet in the country. And as a federal presence in communities where there is no other symbol of that presence, 
So it could be the 21st century postal service connecting people and communities in ways that are positive based on the needs of those communities. So what could that look like? Well, in addition to having retrofitted post offices that are self-powered and self-generating and turning to a green fleet, there are also things that we could be doing that would really benefit Canadians. Uh, For example, a seniors check-in program. So you've got thousands of people out on the street every day going to homes. What other service could they be providing? Providing broadband internet, especially to isolated and remote communities, why not have postal banking, which exists in many, many countries around the world, public postal banking? Why not? Why not give people a choice, especially where the banks have been ripped out of small communities? So it may be a different fit in every community as well. What's needed in, say, the Canadian North around access to healthy food? It's very different than living in Toronto. So we should be consulting with remote communities to be looking at the kind of services that they need and that they require that could be delivered through a postal service that is already existing. So there's, I think, a lot of areas where the post office could be providing services and doing it in a self-sustaining and holistic way to benefit people and communities. So at an event like this, where it's the actions of governments that are supposedly the main event, what's the role for an organization like CUPW? And what kinds of things do you get up to as an attendee? They're very long days. The International Trade Union Confederation is there. So they organize a number of panels. We learn a lot at those panels. Some of it is science-based. Some of it's investment-based. Future for Fridays were there and the kids were there really eloquently giving input and press conferences. So it's about networking. It's about amplifying. So when the Indigenous folks organized a demonstration at the Canadian Embassy around the tech mine. Uh, The proposed tech mine would, if constructed, be the single largest tar sands mine. Currently, the federal Liberal government is deciding whether or not to approve it. We were there. We think it's important to be there and show that kind of support and that internationally Canada can't hide from the fact that it is a climate criminal. It gives us great access to wonderful educational material that we wouldn't necessarily find otherwise, the latest cutting-edge stuff that we are incorporating into our climate emergency course and training. And it means that the governments cannot operate in secret, that there's people watching, there's people asking questions, And so it's not so easy just to go in and, you know, make deals in secret, that they're very public. I think it's really important that civil society be there and not just leave this to the corporations to go with their money. Really, if we weren't there, that discourse wouldn't be as exposed as it is, and things would probably be worse. So it's really vital that we hold government's feet to the fire and that they know that when they operate there, it's not done in secret and that there are repercussions, but also in a positive way that we can promote positive solutions, which we have. I would say that the oil companies like the tobacco companies of old, you know, it's kind of like when you see a tobacco company show up at a health conference telling us about how safe and healthy cigarettes were. I think we're in the same place now. And it's more galling by the fact that They tell us that, you know, our schools will fail if we don't have the oil fields pumping and all of this. And I don't know. I look around a lot of countries and I see schools operating quite fine. They don't even have an oil industry. So I don't buy it anymore. We heard from one person there. I can't remember who presented this in one of the panels, but they talked about, like, for every Canadian, we subsidize the oil industry by about $1,800 a year. So the post office, to put that in perspective, doesn't receive a penny from Canadians, right? It's completely self-funded through the postage and, and through this stuff that post office runs. It's not a drain on the taxpayers. 
So here we are subsidizing huge corporations that come in and destroy the land, and then they don't repair that. Once they're done, they just leave and leave all this mess behind for the people living there to have to deal with it in their drinking water or their you know, disturbed environment. So we can't afford this anymore. We can't afford corporations who are interested in short-term profit margins and stock market to run our world because it's, it's unsustainable. It's a no-brainer. And we're so close to the tipping point, if we aren't already, that this is potentially the largest mass genocide in history, right? And we should be treating it as such, I think, in these times. One of the impressions I got from following some of the grassroots coverage of the COP25 meetings in Madrid back in December was of a real heightening of tension between the official UN process on the one hand and the civil society side on the other. Does that reflect what you felt while you were there? And how, in your experience, did that play out? Yes, absolutely. I was in Copenhagen in 2009 when there was a march of people from frontline communities around the world who attempted to march into the COP to say, here's from us. We're on the front lines. Our lands are disappearing. We've had droughts, so we're here to tell you. And that was brutally crushed by the cops in Copenhagen. But what was less reported was that Abel Morales... Uh, at that point in 2009, Evo Morales, an indigenous man and socialist, was the democratically elected president of Bolivia. He was deposed in a coup supported by the U.S. and Canada in November 2019. And his delegation attempted to leave the COP to join up with the frontline communities and were physically prevented from doing so and assaulted, in fact, members of his entourage. So, you know, any kind of criticism inside the COP is really off limits. You don't talk about the system, for example. Well, it's the system that's killing us, right? But we can't talk about it. And what about in the 2019 meeting? What I was hearing a lot more this time, more than ever, were people speaking out from the front, talking about the system. And we were talking like scientists, UN officials, right? It didn't take much to get them going down the line that what we're living is unsustainable and we have to change the way that we live. And that's not something I've heard so much before at the COP. There were also demonstrations that were conducted inside. I haven't really seen that before. They sort of have a, a, an area where you can do small demonstrations, you apply for a permit and so on, and you can do something in that little square. But in terms of outside the meeting rooms, I've never seen that before. So people are becoming fed up. I wouldn't say hopeless, but we're realizing that something else has to happen. One thing that I was delighted to hear about was the initiative going on in Glasgow, Scotland, where they're going to be carbon zero real soon. They're just being really aggressive about it. And they say, look, municipalities have to act. Most of the population in the world lives in cities. And we need to push ahead from our national governments because our national governments just aren't listening or, in fact, maybe don't even have the power to really do what's necessary to be done and rein in some of these corporations. So definitely more anger for sure. I don't know what that means for the next COP, but we can't just keep waiting. We don't have the time. Many scientists presented new findings saying, you know, it's even worse than we thought. The amount of methane now, for example, is being released into the atmosphere. All these things are just, yeah, it's creating a great deal of tension and a great deal of anger. And hopefully there will be some catalyst to really demand from our governments. Because there's another piece to this that I think that we don't talk about. 
And that's just the nature of our production in itself. So we live in these loop cycles of constant growth. So somehow everything is going to grow forever and everything is measured through GDP. And I don't know, like GDP, I don't really feel deals with my reality very much. Like I don't measure my success on how well the GDP did last year. There are other measures of success in a society, in a community, in a family, in a village that matter. And perhaps some of those values should be brought back to the fore as being the kind of indicators that would indicate a healthy and vibrant society. Not one that's based on tremendous growth, which can actually still grow while human beings and animals are thrown to the wayside and destroyed and somehow the economies can still grow. That's perverse. And maybe, you know, when the first explorers arrived here in Canadian shores and found this candy store of minerals and gold and oil and so on, you know, that can last for a while. But eventually you exhaust your load and you have to go elsewhere and you have to dig elsewhere and, you know, build more houses, build more cars, have more air travel. And maybe we just need to figure out a different way of living. And start having that conversation. And that's the conversation I think Indigenous people have. And that's the one I want to be part of. Because to me, that speaks to sustainability. It speaks to what I do today matters for somebody not even born yet. And that I have some responsibility in that. And some joy, in fact, on carrying one's life in that way. That we're all connected and we're watching each other's backs down the road. And for those generations not born yet, we do not have the right to do what we're doing to this planet. We just don't have it. And I'm hoping that there will be more protests and more disruption. But I also think we need to get more targeted how we do disruption. We need to get better at shifting the terrain, as Sun Tzu said thousands of years, on which we're playing on. So the big news coming out of COP25 in Madrid was that it was a failure. There was no agreement, and a lot of what was being negotiated was criticized quite seriously by a wide range of climate advocates. Given that, and given the urgency of the situation, where, in the official process, in the more grassroots side of things, wherever, do you find hope at this juncture? There is a gender action plan that got adopted, which I think is significant and substantial. So I can't say it's all a write-off, but... I find hope in that a growing number of people are feeling comfortable speaking out in class. Never before have I heard the amount of criticism from the head tables about what we're living and what we're doing. So that sort of veneer of we don't talk about the elephant in the room, I think is coming off. And I'm hopeful in that because it is frustrating to go to these things and see the level of respectability, let's say. And that's important, of course, because we're in a diverse world. But when it comes to the, the, the beast, the nature of the system, that is being questioned openly for the first time in my experience at the COP. And to me, that's exciting. It's exciting to me, the youth. There was a bit of, I think, a fetish about Greta being there and, you know, and the buzz and the ripples that would flow through the place when she would go by and the photo ops that people were looking for. But what I found really significant was going to the press conferences organized by Future for Friday. So these were children from all over the world, from every continent. They weren't Greta. And they were unbelievably articulate. Some of the best stuff I heard was from those like 14, 15-year-old kids. They were far beyond the years, and I think they're figuring out, like, this is my world. And so I think we will see a rising tide of youth that will grow. 
having said that, we know that the oil lobby is, I think, really focused on education. This was another area that was on the agenda to discuss climate change education in schools, climate emergency in the schools. Well, you can bet the oil companies have been jumping onto that to figure out how they can insert Suncor into classrooms and talk about, quote unquote, clean oil. So all to say that there is, I think, an increased awareness of uh, we don't have the time anymore to mess around. What we do, I think, over the next three or four years is going to be absolutely key in terms of the future for the planet. Thinking of the Canadian context specifically, what do you think grassroots people here need to be doing right now to respond to the climate crisis? There's a few things that we can do. One is look to traditional First Nations for leadership. And that can mean inviting them into our schools, inviting people to our meetings, not one of these sort of paternal colonial ways we have a habit of doing, saying, oh, yes, we really appreciate you being here, but more like, no, no, we really appreciate learning from you. That connection is huge. Municipally, I think we can really move things faster at the municipal level. That would be to start creating systems locally where they don't exist, to start advocating around climate, to start putting climate resolutions in front of city councils, and really to push it back in that place, decarbonizing as much as possible. I mean, they make it hard for us here. Canada is not seen as one of the great nations from what I can see when it comes to the future of the planet. We have an inflated sense of self here. From what I was gathering overseas was India, China, Russia, Canada, Australia, and the United States were considered big obstacles. So we need to turn that around in our schools by getting folks into those schools, by pushing for new curriculum. Yeah, and I think it's a combination of those things and getting engaged. And so I think this is a really hopeful time to change not only around getting off of carbon, but also just changing how we produce and relate to each other and how we live. So what I would say is get involved, connect with the youth, connect with Indigenous folks and drive things at the municipal level and hold the feet to the fire of the politicians. And we've got to be there to present the facts and get out there in front of the oil companies and the big media conglomerates who are always going to try to, you know, sort of sanitize this or play it down. And what is CUPW going to be doing around climate in 2020? We're going to continue to push for delivering community power. The CEO of Canada Post has met with us. He reached out to us and said he likes it and he wants to work with us on a post-carbon economy. Now, we'll see what the results are, but we can say that in recent months, they've hired a significant number of environmental policy and environmental science folks at the Post. And we've had a number of inter-union meetings with Canada Post and the other unions in terms of making specific proposals about getting us moving. And we're seeing some openness. So we've got some practical things on the ground, I think, that we really now be pushing in the next couple of years. Once we have a contract, things will become much easier with their membership because, I mean, they've been without a contract now for a couple of years, which is just atrocious. But I think that we'll start seeing some projects, I think, in places that are quite hopeful. And hopefully it will be a good model to other employers and municipalities. And we're looking at also retrofitting some of the buildings that we own. We're currently in discussions with some folks that are assessing what the needs are, the costs, and so on. So, yeah, I think we'll see gathered steam. And also our new course, Climate Emergency, will be coming out. So we'll be training our members, uh, providing education across the country around how to get involved and how to take this on in their individual workplace. You have been listening to my interview with Dave Blakeney of the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. 
You can find out more about CUPW at cupw.ca and more about their Delivering Community Power project at deliveringcommunitypower.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 